let's, let's make a start. Good evening, uh, everyone. Thank you for coming. Uh, my name is uh, Veselin Dimitrov. I am a reader in uh, East European politics in the government department here at the LSE. It gives me great pleasure tonight to um, introduce to you uh, Dr. David Priestland from the University of Oxford, who is going to talk to us tonight about his new book, The Red Flag, Communism uh, and the Making of the Modern World. Dr. Priestland has uh, studied communism for many years. If uh, you count it from uh, the time when he first went to Moscow as um, a 19-year-old undergraduate in 1984, it has been as many as um, 25 years. He has published um, extensively on various aspects of communism, most notably a book called uh, Stalinism and the Politics of Mobilization. Uh, this was published uh, in uh, 2007 by Oxford University Press. So the book, um, the launch of which we are celebrating tonight, has been the product of um, decades of um, careful research um, and reflection. So it is um, quite a ripe fruit. I think there are two reasons why um, this book is important. The first one is that it deals with a subject of major importance. Communism and the struggle against communism were fundamental in defining the political history of the 20th century. So much so that when communism finally collapsed in 1989, some believed that the end of history had come. Now, we now realize that this claim was a bit premature, but it did reflect uh, a genuine feeling at the time that with the end of communism, an entire historical era had come to an end. The second reason why the book is uh, important is the way in which it deals with communism. First and foremost, it provides um, a complete history of communism. Not in the sense of covering every little detail, but rather in the sense of looking at the entire life cycle of communism, from its birth to its growth to its ultimate collapse. So if you want a biography of communism, then this is a book that can provide it. 
The book is also um, important because it tries to understand communism in all its complexity. Uh, Politically and ideologically, it identifies three main elements in communism. The radical or the revolutionary one, uh, the technocratic or the scientific one, and the romantic. It then goes on to um, examine very skillfully how these elements interact with each other, sometimes uh, rather uneasily and conflictually. The book also provides um, a brilliant analysis of the uh, manifold forms that communism has taken in various countries and at different times. Uh, Finally, it examines in depth uh, both the cruelties perpetrated by communism and also uh, its achievements in some cases. And all of this is woven into um, a lively uh, and engaging narrative, uh, one that is um, utterly absorbing. Um, It is genuinely difficult to put this book down once you start it, and given the fact that it's more than 600 pages, it is quite a feat. So, uh, it gives me great pleasure to um, introduce to you tonight uh, Dr. Priestland, and I very much look forward to what I'm sure would be um, a very interesting lecture. Well, thank you for that extremely generous introduction. It's very, very kind of you, and I hope I won't disappoint you. After. <laughs> I find it rather, rather, rather worrying, having uh, just, uh, your expectations will be rather high. Um, well, I would like to start um, with two very different images of, of communism. And I'll let the first one really speak for itself because it's quite a striking one. Some of you may know this, actually, um, but I'm not quite... Some of you may not.
quererte desde la histórica altura donde el sol de tu bravura le puso un cerco a la muerte aquí se queda la clara la entrañable transparencia de tu querida presencia comandante Che Guevara Vienes quemando la brisa con soles de primavera para plantar la bandera con la luz de tu sonrisa Rather an extraordinary pop video, uh, I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, some of you may know it from its, when it was shown. It's from 1997, um, and um, it came to, went to the top of the French charts. It's by Nathalie Cardone, who's a sort of French-Spanish singer, and I don't think it was very popular here, but very popular in France. But many of you, or some of you, may know it who from its original version, 1965 version. It's an ode to Che Guevara. It was originally played in a very low-key low key, uh, way um, on a guitar, um, and it became a sort of anthem um, within the communist movement. 
And of course this, Natalie Cardoni has revved it up really for the sort of MTV generation. Now, I would now like to show you a very different image of communism. I mean, in some ways similar and in some ways different. And this um, is also features um, a woman and a child. Um, it comes from the end of a 1936 Soviet film called Circus. I mentioned, in fact, both of these things in my book. It was an extremely popular Soviet version of, uh, of Hollywood musical, um, produced to celebrate the Stalinist constitution of 1936. And it featured one of the great film stars of the time, Lyubov Orlova. And the story, I think I need to give you a bit of backstory. The story um, is uh, the story of an American circus artiste played by Orlova. Her name is Marion Dixon. And she is hounded out of the United States because she's had a child by an African-American. And so she's hounded out by racists. And she ends up in the Soviet Union performing in circuses, but she hides her black child because she's worried that she will be hounded out of the Soviet Union too. But at the end of the film, she finds out that the Soviet people are very... Uh, multi-ethnic and very um, sensitive to ethnic difference and the Soviet people embrace her and her black child and she goes off with her um, fellow um, acrobat um, circus artiste and um, they uh, come together, I'll be showing this, the clip when they come together and they sing a song to an extremely famous and popular song to ethnic harmony and freedom in the USSR and the words go I do not know of any other country where man breathes so freely so um, as I say, compare and contrast this is Lyubov Orlova <laughs>
quite striking images and the reason I chose them was because in some ways of course these images have quite a lot in common. They uh, tell us about the ideal of communism, the notion of a united people coming together to forge the future. They tell us about communism's charismatic leader cults, both Che Guevara and Stalin. They're about popular struggle against oppression. And they're about a certain sort of revolutionary romanticism, I suppose. Also, they tell us something which we tend not to uh, associate with communism, that whatever the practice, communist regimes claimed that they were trying to achieve equality in all spheres. So they were interested in gender equality, and they were interested in ethnic equality. Now, in practice, uh, they didn't necessarily achieve that, or uh, they achieved it to various degrees. But it was a major message of the communist, uh, of these communist regimes. But if we compare both of these clips, I think we can see major differences between different types of communism. Circus, the last film I showed you, is a much more, the atmosphere is much more militaristic and masculine. Lyubov Orlova casts off her feminine shawl, she hands over the baby and to, to the circus master and becomes a masculine soldier. And more, more generally, everybody is a soldier in an army, led by Stalin. Um, as you, you, you see the, 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 the uniform, the um, white sporting uniforms that they all have. The atmosphere is much more regimented, planned, modernizing, um, and, and, and um, uh, organized. Whereas, and, and that is very much, of course, what we associate with Stalinist communism. Whereas the Natalie Cardone video shows a communism which is much more democratic in aspiration, free and easy, egalitarian. Of course, we need to distinguish between Cardone's Che and Che himself. <coughs> Cardone is a post-1968 feminist figure, if you can call it that, although she's mixing it, perhaps post-feminist, she's mixing that with a sort of very sexualized MTV uh, style. Um, I mean, she's almost presenting women as a sort of, herself as a shaman-type voodoo figure, summing up sort of revolutionary forces. Um, Che Guevara, of course, was part of a much more masculine uh, guerrilla culture. But I think Che, like Cardone, uh, was, in a way, Cardone represents that much more democratic, popular participatory culture. And so I think the films represent two types of communism, two types of communist culture. The, the, the what I, um, Veselin called, as Veselin called, the more, well, a more radical quasi-romantic egalitarian approach to communism. This is the communism of the guerrilla army and Stalin's, uh, Stalinist communism, which is a much more centralised, is, is the communism of the disciplined army rather than the guerrilla band. And I think 
we, we have to understand the fact that the communism embraced both of those cultures. It zigzagged between them, it combined them in different ways, and there are enormous tensions between them, between this egalitarian revolutionary Marxism, between the more modernizing Marxism of science. And that tension was the root of many of the divisions within communism, between the more uh, hierarchical technocratic Stalinists and the more egalitarian Trotskyists and Maoists. And just as there were two different styles of communism, so there were two central promises that communists made. Marxism, communism, promised both complete equality and a disciplined modern state and economy. Therefore, in that sense, communism, of course, contrasts with liberal capitalism, which says that modernity, modern states and economies, require economic inequalities. And in, in an, an, another contrast is with anarchism, which, which is not at all interested in uh, modern, centralized modern states and centralized economies. So this is how I would, I would see communism. It, it is a single thing, but it has major tensions within it between these two different, if you like, a guerrilla culture and an army culture. So if that's what communism, at least communism in power, was, and the communist movement, in this, in this talk I want to ask three questions about it. Why did communism have so much appeal in certain places and not in others in the 20th century? Why did this form of communism fail? Was that failure inevitable or was communism as an idea just badly applied? And then finally, does communism have any relevance today? Is there any future for communism? And, and will communism re-emerge as a major force with this crisis of, of globalized capitalism, which has been occurring over the last year, year or two? And my main argument will be that a misleading view of communism has emerged in the last 20 years, since 1989 and, and before, which we might call, I would call, a liberal fundamentalist view of communism. And that idea goes as follows. That communism should be seen largely as a utopian idea which was championed by small groups of intellectuals. It was either imposed on a large group of people, a mass of people by force, um, or it was, uh, it appealed to deluded or irrational people. It didn't really have any fundamental roots. It was a good idea in principle, but like all, all utopias, it was doomed to failure because mankind is naturally competitive and individualistic, and markets and liberal democracy are the only way to organize societies. Regimes, communist regimes, therefore, had to use force to impose this unnatural system, and eventually, as predicted, uh, communists were compelled to abandon it because of uh, internal contradictions, but also pressure from Reagan and Thatcher. And overall, we should judge it as a cul-de-sac in human development, a mistake that went nowhere of very little interest today. And I would say that argument, okay, it's caricatured, but I actually think it's quite a, a powerful argument and a popular argument. And I think it's interesting that now we're, we're marking these anniversaries of 1989, most of the comment has been about, the anniversary, about 1989 itself. There hasn't been that much discussion about communism. 
Because I think people are a bit bored with communism. They think, oh, well, it's just one of those things that's in the past, or it's a bit kitschy and, you know, like a Natalie Cardone video, and we, we can just forget about it and ignore it because it was just something that, that, that happened for various strange reasons, misguided reasons, and we, and we can ignore it. And, that, and in a way, that sort of surprises me a bit, given, that, given this crisis of, of global capitalism. And it's this argument I want to, 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 to challenge. Um, and I want to argue that uh, communism seemed to solve and, and met, did solve some of the problems of a particular period in, in, human, in, in modern history. Um, it failed, of course, um, as, a, as a ruling system, but the problems it tried to tackle have not, uh, not, not gone away. Now, first, I want to look at then why communism emerged and became popular in some places and not in others. And as, as, as I've said, I think it's simplistic to argue that communism is just something dreamt up arbitrarily by a few weird intellectuals or power-hungry um, uh, leaders. Communism did appeal for, partly for emotional reasons and anger at ruling classes, but it also appealed for rational reasons. It seemed to solve real problems that liberal capitalism could not solve. Communism was most popular, I'm sure as everybody um, is obvious, in non-industrial agrarian uh, societies. And these were societies which were both highly unequal and divided, and they were also unable to compete in the modern world as compete as states and guarantee higher, high living standards, compete economically, guarantee high living standards to their populations. Indeed, the two went together. In what we call modern societies, to, speaking very crudely, people, the, the populations are relatively homogeneous in working together for a common purpose. They, they can be bound together to fight wars, to build large-scale industry. They're used to cooperating. Um, I suppose that's a very crude definition of what modern societies are about. That, um, whereas pre-modern societies are, non-modern societies are much more fragmented. Inequalities are much greater. These non-modern societies, non-integrated non societies, find it very difficult and found it very difficult to compete with modern integrated societies. Old paternalistic aristocracies ruled, and they relied on deference, they relied on behaving like the father figures to the population. But because they were so culturally separated from the mass of people, they didn't have the or the, much authority amongst ordinary people. They certainly didn't have the authority that elites in more modern countries had, where there is less of a gap between elites and the masses and, and ordinary people. So we find that these pre-modern societies find it very difficult to compete. So Russia cannot mobilize its population effect as effectively as Germany can in World War I. China cannot mobilize its population in the struggle against Japan because there is that fragmentation, that gap, if you like, between elites and, and um, the poor. So, whereas, whereas in more modern societies, elites have managed to overcome that gap at least to some extent. 
Now, what about commercial classes? Couldn't they try and bridge that gap between elites and, and ordinary people? Well, actually, they didn't have very much authority either in places like Russia um, or Cuba or many of these developing countries. They were politically weak um, and dominated by old aristocratic elites. And they were also very unpopular um, amongst, ordinary amongst ordinary people. In peasant societies, we find this in a lot of peasant societies, peasants often are quite collectivist and they often see the market as an evil thing. Merchants are speculators, money lenders. Rich peasants are kulaks, literally fists. They are grasping people. The culture is quite an anti-market one. And so in these sorts of societies, <clears throat> middle classes tended to side, or commercial classes tended to side with aristocracies against the poor. And the result was that we find a big cultural gap between popular classes on the one hand, in, in Cuba they were actually called the classes populares, uh, in, Russia, uh, in Russia they were called the people, the narod. We see a big gap between the, 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 the poor and elites. We see this in, in, a, in a lot of countries, like Russia in 1917, Cuba in 1959. There's a lot of anger about, against privilege. And we can contrast that with societies like, say, the United States, like Britain, where elites have made more of an accommodation with, with uh, the population. Um, now, of course, in the United States, aristocratic elites were very weak and commercial groups were much better able to uh, integrate society, were quite powerful. In Britain, aristocratic groups had made deals with commercial groups. I mean, it sounds very crude, I know, but I think we've got to think in these sort of quite broad, if you like, historical sociological terms to understand the very diff the huge differences between these, um, you know, developing societies and, and so-called modern societies. Now, in these developing societies, it was therefore rather understandable that intellectuals would think, well, to become modern, um, the American and, and British, the sort of liberal capitalist model, was not going to work. Um, the, that model depended really on a sort of alliance of merchants and aristocratic elites to integrate society, to do deal, to, to, to bridge that gap with ordinary people. Now that, that was not going to work in these societies where there are huge gaps between elites and masses and where commercial classes are weak. So they sought a new system, a new model of development and path of development and form of development. It was one that didn't rely on an alliance of aristocratic elites and merchants. It was one that relied on an alliance of radical intellectuals and the ordinary people. And this is what the communist model was. And they looked to Marx to justify that, and, and indeed Marx did justify it. They also looked to, they, they identified themselves with the Greek mythic figure Prometheus. According to the Greek legends, I'm sure you know, um, um, Prometheus was the god who brought the fire of knowledge to ordinary people. He, he felt sympathy for ordinary people. Zeus, the father figure Zeus, the aristocrat, was preventing ordinary people from, from uh, 
progress, was not giving them progress, was, was hiding fire from them because he was worried that progress would challenge his authority. So Prometheus, according to Greek mythology, Prometheus is the god who brings the fire of knowledge of progress to ordinary people and challenges the old aristocratic figure, Zeus. And people like Marx and communists after him saw themselves as sort of intellectuals who were going to rescue the people from this unjust father figure, Zeus. And they were not going to rely on merchants to help them. Merchants, they thought, were equally, uh, would only create new types of inequality, inequalities based on economics, um, economic difference. They also thought that the bourgeoisie, as they called it, merchants were snivelling, um, just wanted to suck up to the aristocracy, um, and, you know, they, in some of these societies, they had a point. So, what we have then is, is, throughout the 20th century, communists provided an alternative form of, an alternative form of modernity and an alternative route to modernity, to liberal capitalism. And, and communism and liberal capitalism competed for the hearts and minds of the world, but particularly the developing world. And this explains why the conflict was so uh, vicious, really, uh, because in a way both, of, both were promising a similar ideal. They were both promising a mod modernity, and they both argued that they had got the right solution, the, other, the others had, had, had got the wrong solution. Whereas, whereas, a, whereas a, a, a power like Nazis, the Nazis, of course, were not so straightforwardly pro-modernity. Yeah. Oh, sorry, can I do something about... Oh, right, okay, yeah, sorry. Um. Okay. Now, how did the communists try to do this? How did they... Okay, so they're, tr they're trying to reach this, modern, this particular type of modernity. How did they try and do it? Well, they do it by systematically discriminating against these old elites, aristocratic elites, uh, priests and the church, who they regarded as the ideological supporters of those elites, but, and also capitalists, as they called them, merchants, rich peasants, people who wanted to trade. And they called this class struggle. Now, sometimes that was done violently. Often it was done violently. Communists didn't um, revel in violence in the way, say, Nazis did. I mean, Nazis... Um, uh, uh, positively said violence was a good thing. Not many communists did argue that. Very few did, actually. They argued that violence was something that... But, but they did argue that violence was something that was necessary sometimes because the bourgeoisie, these class enemies, uh, would resist the sort of modernization that they wanted. And often, the... You know, what communists did was very violent. And one thinks about land reform campaigns in China in the 90, early 1950s. I think we now know rather more about those than we did, and they were often carried out with enormous violence. Collectivization in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe, we've known quite a lot about for some time. But it, this was not always done violently. Uh, in Cuba, for instance, Cuba, well, there, were, there was violence against particular elites. Um, but 
in a way, they avoided a lot of the violence because middle classes were allowed to leave. Of course, the middle class groups who they didn't want uh, uh, corrupting communism were allowed to go to the United States. And, of course, they caused trouble for the Cuban regime from Miami rather than so, – and the Cubans uh, didn't um, have to wage – or it felt they didn't have to wage violent class struggle against them internally. But generally, communist regimes, whether they used violence or not, often saw the world in very black and white, Manichaean terms. That is, there are us and them. There are the class enemies, the, the bourgeoisie who are going to resist communism, and we've got to either, we've got to uh, change their mentalities, and sometimes that, that didn't, uh, in an ideal world, that would not involve violence. One could transform them by persuasion, but if persuasion didn't work, then violence was perfectly legitimate. And I think in many ways, I think one has to accept that communists tended to be more accepting of violence than liberals are. But that, of course, is not to say that liberal capitalists have uh, not um, supported violence in many times in their history. And one only has to look at... Um, um, only has to look at Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever, where, where you, have, you have violence waged in, in the name of liberal capitalist ideals. So, if that's what communists tried to do, did they, what, what did they achieve? Did they achieve anything? Well, as many people have argued, yes, they, in, if we look at many of these societies, they did achieve things like uh, modern healthcare systems. They might not have been great always, but they, were, they didn't exist before. Um, modern education systems, they were very good on literacy. Um, but I think something that is often ignored, or neglected that is, is that they, they often created a slightly more intangible form of equality. And I think we, it's, it's a bit difficult to define this, but I think we see this best by comparing two societies, which are both poor and agrarian, at the beginning of the 20th century, India and China. And in the early part of the 20th century, uh, both were heavily influenced by ideologies that entrenched hierarchies. Men over women, old over young, privileged and wealthier over underprivileged. In China, that ideology was Confucianism. In India, it was a caste ideology that was related to Hinduism. Now, nationalists in both countries complained that these cultures of hierarchy, deference, difference, were holding them back, were preventing the people from coming together, cooperating in a modern society that would help them to wage wars, build industry, and fight against the foreign oppressor. But in China, of course, the communists took power and pursued a, Chinese, a communist experiment, whereas in India, um, nationalists rejected communism and pursued a more liberal form of development. Um, now, in China, serious efforts were made to challenge Confucian hierarchies, and that is exactly what the Cultural Revolution was supposed to do. In India... Um, Gandhi did criticise caste discrimination, but Congress Party, Gandhi's Congress Party did not seriously challenge it because the Congress Party was fundamentally um, a party of, uh, well, a mixture of intellectuals, merchants and rich peasants. Uh, they weren't going to challenge those elites. Um, they weren't really going to challenge caste hierarchies in any fundamental way. 
And so caste remain very, and remains very important. And I think in this comparison between India and Chinese development, one can see many of the advantages and disadvantages of communism. As we know, the Chinese communists pursued equality by using a great deal of violence. The Cultural Revolution was the most extreme form of that. It was an attempt to challenge old elites, educated elites, um, old ideas of Confucianism. It created a lot of waste. It destroyed the education of a, of a, of a whole generation. But China today has achieved high levels of literacy and social mobility. And I think it's reasonable to argue that the communist regime laid the grounds for the extraordinary modernization that's occurred since 1978. Now, India, on the other hand, avoided that state-led violence. It's much more respectful of minority rights, probably much more respectful of the environment. But it's a society riddled with deference, and it's a society that has not achieved very high levels of literacy and education. Of course, it has an excellent higher elite education system, but not a good popular mass education system, in fact, a very poor mass education system. And I think the difference in, it, this isn't just about education, it's about behavior and atmosphere. And I think this is something that one notices as a casual visitor to both China and India. I mean, I'm not an insider in either, but somebody, um, I think inside, even insiders recognize it. Um, a former student of mine, actually, Pallavi Ayer, an Indian journalist who worked for the Hindu, newspaper reporting from Beijing, wrote in her rather good book, very good book, Smoke and Mirrors, comparing India and China, wrote very powerfully, I think, about the very different interpersonal relations that one finds in India and China. Uh, even in China, even the poor um, are more, as she argued, are more confident, less deferential, perhaps more pushy, but more ambitious, and certainly literacy is, is higher. Whereas as she argued, in, in, in Delhi, you find you know, the poor have a much more deferential, much less um, modern, if you like, in inverted commas, attitude. So what I want to stress here, I'm not saying that communism was necessary. I'm not saying there weren't other solutions. I'm sure there were other solutions that wouldn't have involved violence. And of course, things like the Cultural Revolution were extremely damaging to modernization. But what I do want to say is that communists were not just dreamy utopians or cynical power seekers, although no doubt there were many of those. They were confronting real problems of inequality in modernizing societies, societies which we find quite, in, in, from Britain, quite difficult to understand. And those societies exist in some developing societies today. And one could say, of course, one could argue that perhaps they're returning in some developed societies today. But, of course, communism did fail as a ruling system. It was abandoned by most communist leaders. And although, of course, there are people who still call themselves communists, and there's the odd communist, old-style communist regime, North Korea, Cuba, um, most communists um, have, have really, uh, who, even people who call themselves communists, like the Chinese Communist Party, have abandoned the central essence of communism, which was saying we can get along without the market. And ultimately, it was clear to many of these groups, elites, that economic, the economic system was not allowing their states to compete. Economic growth was stalling. So why did, why did it fail? 
Well, this is the central debate, I suppose. For some people, um, communist ideas were not tried properly um, and um, they're not responsible if only communism had been tried by good people or, or real communists, then it might have worked. Um, others would argue that it was communist ideas that were responsible. Well, I think if we look at the history of communist regimes, communist regimes were driven by a mixture of both communist ideas and indigenous cultures. I mean, when we look at the um, Stalinist system, we look at uh, the medals, uh, the ranks, uh, the epaulets. Um, I mean, let me show you an example of, of that. Yes. Uh, you know, if we look at the, we look at Stalin here, and at Stalin um, in, a, in, a, in a propaganda poster of 1952, and we see, we look at the, the epaulets, we look at the military uniform. Well, this reminds us very much of Russian culture circa, you know, in World War One or Tsarist Russian culture. We think of, um, it, it, it doesn't look very communist to us. And, and so it's true, yes, that communism was practiced through the prism of an indigenous culture. And so when we say the Soviet regime failed, uh, that is a failure of both communism and of the, if you like, the Russian culture, the Russian authoritarian culture within which, within which it operated. But I think... I, I, would, I think I would argue that Marx's ideas also had some responsibility for that failure. And in particular, I think I, I've argued that it was the absolutism, if you like, or the all-or-nothingness of Marx's project in both the political and economic spheres that was the, the, that was the problem. Um, Marx argued for the end of all hierarchies. He said that people would rule themselves, through elected councils at all levels. Um, there was no need for rights. You would, there was no need for parliamentary democracies. The whole people would somehow rule together through these councils. But the problems with this idea are, are obvious, I suppose. How can you reconcile the interests of the, Soviet, of the factory council, of the military council, with the state itself? What happens if the state disagrees with the factory councils? Uh, for Marx... You didn't, you didn't need to worry about that because they would sort of naturally agree and everybody would get on. Uh, and he rejected the notion of minority rights, of the protection of minorities against the state. Um, whereas, of course, liberalism does allow for that. And I think the uh, example of communist regimes shows that, that that neglect of rights, of liberal rights, um, helps to explain, at least, some of the authoritarian that emerged. There was no way in which Marxists, communists could argue, okay, we need to protect with constitutions or with clear rights, minorities against uh, the state. There's no theory of checks and balances, which there is in, in liberalism. And so what we tend to find in communist regimes is they, often, they go in cycles. They start off in a very egalitarian way, talking about factory councils, the need for, to elect people, um, and then they, power gradually concentrates 
into the leadership, into the state. And it's very difficult to stop that process. And if I just briefly show you the, the sort of process uh, happening in the Stalinist era, here we find a, a, a poster of 1932 or three of Stalin marching with workers. Okay, it's not egalitarian image, but Stalin at least is the same size as the workers he's marching with. 1935, we find Stalin very much bigger than the workers he, uh, who are behind him. And also, the slogan says, cadres decide everything. Cadres means officials. So, in a way, the, the regime is emphasizing educated officials much more. And here we see educated people and rather more, you know, eminent people and not just ordinary workers. And then, of course, the, the image I've shown you before, we have Stalin in 1952, who's entirely on his own. <laughs> And the slogan you can't see is glory to the great Stalin, architect of communism. So I think in those three images we see that process which one sees in a lot of communist regimes of the gradual uh, narrowing of power. The second problem, I think, the way in which Marx's ideas contributed to some of the problems of communism was his absolute rejection of uh, the market and his demonization of capitalists, his, tr his treatment of capitalists as a class enemy. Now, people may disagree with me on that, so I'm sure many will, and market people, commercial people may not be very popular now. Um, but markets do have a function. They're often quite effective in, in, in coordinating parts of the economy. They also provide a, a counterweight to the state. Um, and they're an alternative source of power, and also they're a source of innovation. Um, um, we can talk about that perhaps in the discussion. And I think, but I think it's no surprise that many communists found themselves um, looking to market solutions, not just the Chinese in the 70s, but Lenin himself in the 1920s and the Yugoslav communists after the Stalin, after, after, in the 1950s. Okay, so I think just to conclude, I think I would, I would say that the failures of communist regimes were not just caused by Marx's ideas, but they do have a relationship to Marx's ideas. And I think one can understand why Marxist, why communist ideas are not, um, why they have problems and why they have not re-emerged um, as, as, um, as a model which people are following today. But I, I would argue, just finally, that accepting Marxist communist and communist solutions, the, 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 the anti-rights and anti-market solutions, completely anti-market solutions were flawed, I think does not mean that the Marxist critique of capitalism has nothing to it. I think Marx's critique, perhaps not his solutions, but his critique is a very powerful one. His view that markets, if left to their own devices, cause huge inequalities of power and wealth, that capitalists, Marxist view that capitalists stop investing in the real economy and move into financial speculation. The result will be economic instability, ruined lives, political crisis. All of this seems terribly prescient. And actually, when I'm thinking about the modern economic crisis, you know, trying to find you know, who, who, who says the most interesting things about it, I find it's Marxist economists who say the most interesting things. It's people like Robert Brenner or Giovanni Arrighi, uh, People, you know, those seem much more interesting and more prescient on the capitalist crisis than reading uh, op-ed pieces in the Financial Times. Um, 
Now, my, my personal view for what it's worth, and I'm, you know, I'm not um, giving you a political manifesto here, but my personal view is that capitalism can operate in the interests of at least um, a large majority of people if it is very closely controlled. Um, but at the moment, of course, there are very few signs um, that that is happening. And in a way, the Marxists' critique um, perhaps helps to explain why it's very difficult to create that controlled capitalism, um, which was achieved to some extent, at least, in the post-1945 period. So, if the Marxist critique of capitalism has much to it, um, and if capitalists themselves and our global leaders are not really reforming capitalism um, in a way that is going to be of interest to the majority of people, will communism return? Might we see the return of some sort of uh, real communism? Well, I don't think it's going to return in an identical form um, I, with a complete rejection of markets and planning, at least for some time. But that's not to say the communist tradition is... Is, 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 is not present even now and, and may not become powerful. In some places, in some societies, um, communism has never gone away. If we look at um, Nepal and India, um, that, the so-called Red Corridor, Maoists and Axolite guerrillas have been fighting in the countryside for, you know, for, really since, on and off since the 1960s. In Latin America, we see a revival of a radical populist left, perhaps not a, a, a communist left in the old sort of purely anti-market you know, anti sense, but certainly a Marxist, a, a, a radical left that uses Marxist language. If we move to countries with a tradition of strong authoritarian states like Russia and China, it seems that we, we can see another form of um, communism well, not communism, but, but another tradition, leftist tradition emerging, a more statist tradition. If, if in, in India, Nepal, we find the sort of Natalie Cardone version of communism, uh, at least mutating and emerging, in China and Russia, it seems we're, we're seeing the circus image of communism emerging and changing and, and reconciling itself to the market, i.e. a very strong statist form of corporatist capitalism. Now, what about the left? Well, sorry, what about the West? Well, um, my, again, for what it's worth, my view is that we're in for a long time of, of declining living standards, and that's something which we're in uncharted territory. And um, what's the response to that going to be? Well, it, at the moment, it looks as if the right's going to benefit because popular groups tend, have been blaming globalization and immigrants for their plight. But if we're in for a whole decade of declining living standards, liberal capitalist democracies have not been used to that. Um, I mean, effectively, we may be in the equivalent of 1930, you know, the year after the crisis of 1929. It was only in 1945, after 15 years of civil strife, of, you know, some 55 million deaths, that the West achieved a prosperous state and economic order. Now, I don't want to end on this grim note, and I'm certainly not going to follow Marx in trying to predict the future. But I do, would argue that we need to avoid the sort of liberal smugness which has uh, been associated with our celebrations of the 1989 revolutions. 
Um, and I want to argue that uh, the study of Marxism and of communism is essential if we're to understand the problems and the very real uh, limitations of liberal capitalism. Thank you. Right. Um, first of all, um, I would like to thank um, David for um, a very um, wide-ranging um, presentation. I'd like to um, start by uh, abusing the chairman's privilege and uh, asking um, a question in two parts. Uh, as far as I understand it, uh, the central idea uh, of the book is that um, communism was essentially a modernizing strategy, uh, a strat strategy for the underdeveloped world. <coughs> Now, in many ways, this is surprising. Um, communism was not developed originally for uh, the um, underdeveloped world. It was developed for what, at the time, were the most advanced societies on Earth. <coughs> now, of course, uh, in his youth, uh, Marx was very much driven to despair by the backwardness of Germany but his mature views were formed very largely on the basis of what he saw uh, in Britain, which was the highest form of modernity seen at the time. And his mature argument was that capitalism would only be replaced by socialism when it has reached its highest level of maturity. So uh, intellectually, it is a puzzle. Why is it that uh, an ideology that was developed for the most sophisticated societies of their time proved a failure in those societies, but a success in societies that were very different. Indeed, Marx himself uh, was um, uh, struggling with this dilemma until the end of his life and was never able to resolve it. Now, I know that this is a perennial question uh, for students of communism, but I'll be very interested in what David thinks about it. Uh, the, 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 the second part of the question, if I may. Uh, one of the most surprising things about uh, 1989, about the fall of communism in Central and Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union, was that it had such a devastating uh, ideological impact on social democracy in Western Europe. Now, this should not have happened. Uh, as David says rightly in his book, after 1945, social democratic parties in Eastern Europe had developed quite a coherent ideological position that was based on mixed markets, on a welfare state, and so forth. This ideological position was not dependent on communist ideology. Indeed, it was defined in opposition to communist ideology. So in theory, the collapse of communism as an ideology of the system should not have had such a devastating ideological impact on social democracy in Western Europe. And yet it did. Uh, indeed, one could have expected, in theory, 1989 to mark the triumph of social democracy because it ultimately defeated communism. Um, something with which it had struggled since 1917. And yet, that was not the case. 1989 marked the beginning of a prolonged ideological crisis of social democracy in Western Europe, a crisis from which we are yet to emerge. 
Um, indeed, uh, from my reading of the uh, current situation, uh, what is amazing is um, the ideological impotence, if you like, of the left. Uh, and the economic crisis on, on its own cannot help that. So I am surprised, why is it that the fall of communism, an ideology that was very different from social democracy, had such a devastating ideological impact? Not only electoral impact, uh, social democratic parts are still doing well uh, in relative terms mm. in most Western mm. European countries, but ideologically. Mm. Mm. Yeah, both really interesting questions. Um, the first is one of these massive questions which <laughs> affects the whole Marxist tradition. I, I, I suppose my feeling, my approach would be that, that you know, I, you know why, why, did, why, why did Marx, why, why was Marx so wrong to think that um, socialism would emerge in, um, in, in developed capitalist societies? Why did, it, why, why did it not do that? I suppose... Um, to some extent, he was right to think that um, powerful states involving themselves in the economy would emerge in developed societies um, in the West, and I suppose that did happen. What he wasn't right about was thinking that collectivism would continue, and, and I think that's because... Um, um, uh, commercial groups were very effective at undermining collectivist working class cultures or artisanal or peasant cultures. They were very good at, I mean, Marx, when he observed artisans or peasants, he said, oh yeah, these are really socialist people. They're collectivists. They don't like capitalists. Um, they're, 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 they're very egalitarian. And that was true then. But I suppose markets very effectively absorbed those group, either absorb or absorb parts of those groups, excluded others, and of course, if we look at something like consumerism today, I mean, if we, you know, is there a working class culture today? Well, I suspect there isn't in the sense that there was 30 years ago uh, or 40 years ago, because that, that that collectivism has been undermined by the notion that you know people want to. Um, consume and um, or they want to they become aspirational or they want to get out of that situation so I would say that is one of the reasons yeah. why that the Marx didn't realise the power of commercial culture and that is the big problem one again that helps to, also perhaps to, helps to explain um, the weakness of the left today um, that in a way the left is strongest where you still have quite collectivist peasant cultures, say in Latin America, in India, um, in, um, you, know, you, you, you find there are, there are groups that have not been very effectively penetrated by either the state or by the market. Whereas um, in modern society, you know, developed societies they have. And, and, um, but on, on your second question, why, why did the, the fall of communism have such a devastating effect on the moderate left, if you like, or the social democratic left? I mean, that, that is very interesting, and, and I think a lot of it is to do with a, well, really what I call the liberal fundamentalist story of 1989, which I think has, has been so dominant. That is the notion that the problem with communism was that um, it was against human nature, and that um, com human nature is individualistic, competitive, that's why liberal capitalism won, and communism was about trying to force people to be what they didn't want to be. Um, now, um, I'll try 
and uh, change that. Um, um, whether whether that will continue, I don't know. I mean, I think that in a way now, we, you know, in a way the failures of a very radical form of liberalism have, are now very evident. And I think we're in a transitional period where people think, realise, you know, within living memories, two systems have failed. And um, I think people are taking quite a lot of time, a long time, to think about what this alternative to liberal capitalism might be, or to at least globalised liberalism might be, um, if we're not going to go back to a sort of status communism. Right. Well, if Gary announced, it would be that the synthesis might emerge. <laughs> right, uh, yes. Uh, do you want the microphone? Yeah. My interest in communism goes back to Trotsky, and uh, uh, I regret that there was no uh, even passing mention of him in what you presented today. I say this having read recently the book by Bouvard, The Battle for Spain, and the antipathy which existed in the setting there. It is most revealing uh, as to the nature of development of communist support in a country where the Catholic Church mm. Bouvard, very, very interesting. Um, I also had occasion recently to read R.W. Johnson's book on the Brave New World, South Africa, and again was reminded how the history of the communist activists in Mozambique and in South Africa mm-hmm. played a major part in determining the sad failed state which is current in South Africa, where, where blacks are supposed to rule, but no corruption is, is, is rife. I had occasion recently to follow the Indian election and noted there that whilst um, most people supported that Congress and BJP had been contained, and speaking to somebody who knew far more about India than myself, they remarked that whilst caste and corruption were rife in India, caste in particular was a major hurdle, Mm. and said that uh, a beacon of uh, hope for the country was that states were increasingly election where they're showing that the local parties were strong, they were uh, fighting uh, the discrimination against the poor and the landless people and were introducing rules uh, meetings which benefited the, the communists are. within the states. Behind. The communists within the states or yes. yeah, all right. Yes. Oh I see, sorry. Yeah, um, thank you. Yes, um, no, Trotskyism, I think, is an important element in, in communism. And um, as, I, 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 as I think I said, it is really a, a, a sort of more radical, romantic element of communism. And, you know, in a way, it has, it has, similar, it has affinities, at least, with, with Maoism and with, with other strongly anti-Stalinist forms of communism. It's a bit more like the sort of Natalie Cardone-type view of communism. So, yes, and I think com- uh, Trotskyists were, of course, much more... powerful and effective in the West than Stalinists and particularly in the United States and and they were the most powerful form of uh, communism in that very uncommunist place Um, on on the um, on uh, the other thing was India yes Um, and on 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 India um, yes I mean people you know there there is a struggle over caste and, uh, and I'm not saying that India is a sort of you know, I mean, the, 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 there are groups struggling against caste issues. Of course, the BJP tend to be rather in favour of. Um, well, I mean, caste is a big political issue. So I'm not. I don't want to say that 
India is this caste-ridden place and China is this great place. I don't want to, to say that. They're clearly, caste is, a, is a, major, a major political issue and many people are struggling against caste discrimination. But caste is still surprisingly important in India um, and that, um, I'm sure that will change as the society becomes more integrated, but it's rather strikingly different to China in that respect. I think there's a few questions from this side, so um, let's take yes, please. Dr. Priestland, uh, you spoke briefly about the future of communism, and I'd like to ask you your opinions on uh, the reconciliation uh, in, hopefully, the near future of a red-green alliance, uh, a combination of socialist and environmental ethics, where if you go to, for instance, the UK and Wales Green Party National Conference on an equal level of the national platform is now social justice, a thinly veiled code word for socialism if there ever was one, and fringe workshops on Marxist uh, critiques of capitalism, and at the same time the carbon footprint associated with um, global free trade is providing a powerful new critique of um, global capitalism uh, and globalization. Yeah, very good point, and I should have talked about environmental issues, seeing that they, they really are, of course, at the center of, um, well, not just, you know, what, what, the, not just the left, but what we should be thinking about ourselves. Yes, I think there are, I mean, there are attempts to forge that, and perhaps to forge a red-green alliance. I think there are problems with it, because I suppose that communists, um, and at least that version of socialism, uh, that has been very modernizing and very concerned about raising living standards um, of the poor uh, through economic, conventional economic growth methods, whereas, um, of course, the environmental movement um, it often wants to challenge that and argue that we can't go on as we have in the past. Um, so I think there is a problem in, an, uh, in, in a red-green alliance. Um, that's not to say it, it, it's not happening, and it is happening, but um, there is a, a, a major tension there. I think where the green issue will help the left is in the role of, of the state, that um, it will become clear that the state has to have much more power to, I don't, I mean, perhaps there will be all these market solutions to carbon uh, problem, you know, carbon emissions, but I rather doubt it, and I suspect that the state will have to become much more powerful to, to regulate that. So, yes, I mean, that, that in, in a way you could say that environmental issues may be the saviour of the left in the longer term. Okay, let's take some questions from this side. Yes, please. Thanks. Um, I'm a PhD student in the International History Department, and uh, my research is on Yugoslav uh, communism in the 50s. Um, but um, my, my questions are a bit more, um, a bit more general, and um, they can be summarized by three words. Um, one would be um, rights, one would be class, and one would be state. Um, the first, the first um, aspect of it is um, when you talked about rights and individual rights, what's interesting about m many of the communist countries is that, in fact, they do come up with um, a rather warped uh, set of constitutional checks and balances mm -hmm. of a different nature, um, particularly, say, nationalities policy. And Yugoslavia is a particularly um, you know, extreme variation of that particular um, um, evolution, and I was wondering if you could say a few words on, on that particular thing. Um, the second one about class, uh, and this is 
possibly where um, I, I, you know, as a Marxist, probably, uh, you know, uh, reveal myself anyway, but I'll, I'll say it out loud <laughs> for the benefit of all. Um, when you talk about Marx's relationship to the peasantry, I think it's a very much more contradictory one than you make out. Um, his, his analysis of the French peasantry in the 18th Brumaire um, is one of a particularistic, um, very parochial, um, if you like, not collectivist, in effect, um, liable to uh, use of um, uh, use by the state, um, in effect, against uh, the urban population, um, which 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 I think is an interesting question about when we uh, when we when we view the different sorts of revolutions that we've we've seen, um, largely in as you say, uh, peasant societies um, or, or, or um, less. Uh, developed societies, uh, and that's something to be taken into consideration when, when talking about the role of intellectuals and so on. Um, third question, which has to do um, with the state, but also with class, is the issue of, you know, Marx talks about smashing the state, um, and in effect, um, when we see um, the failure of statist um, um, models, it wasn't just um, the Soviet Union that failed, it was also the Keynesian model, the so-called mixed model that you talk about that failed in the 70s. So is, is the solution one that he saw in the state or is it one in class? Mm. Eric Hobsbawm in his History of the 20th Century um, ironically um, says the first um, urban revolution after the Second World War um, and most you know, probably most famous one is the Islamic Revolution. So um, when, we look about, when we look at the kind of return of the urban revolution, its solidarity in Poland, it's, um, you know, it's, it's the ANC and Kosatu in South Africa. So uh, is this, is the, um, what I'm trying to get, uh, get at is there's a kind of return to the urban uh, movement, to the urban um, setting which Marx talked about. Um, and is, 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 does this actually um, come up with the limitations of the state from a class basis? Mm. Thanks. Thanks. Three really interesting questions. Yeah, on rights. Yes, um, I, I think, yes, I, I agree with you absolutely. Communist regimes, um, okay, they, they did not well, I, I mean, communist regimes did have constitutions, and of course, the circus film is celebrating the Stalin's constitution, which claimed to have all these individual rights as well. But that's not, but I don't want to say that. Uh, communist regimes weren't very often very uh, careful about um, uh, defending minorities, and that's not just the case in Yugoslavia, but uh, certain ethnic minorities. But I mean, it's the case also with, say, gypsies in, in, in Eastern Europe, and of course, with the end of communist regimes, often those subgroups really did suffer. So I absolutely agree with you on that. On Marx's view of the peasantry, um, yes. Um, Yes, Marx himself, of course, was quite anti-peasant and, and generally thought peasants were, were, were sort of reactionary groups. Um, I mean, but, it, but if you look at, but in a way, communists, future communists had problems with that, really, because often they were relying, particularly in agrarian societies, they were relying on peasants. And they did, you know, in Cuba, for instance, they are relying on peasant collectivism. And in Russia, okay, you know, yes, they're not necessarily revolutionary. They can be quite pro-government, but they can be quite egalitarian um, because they, um, you know, want land reform. Um, and on, this, on, your, on your other, que your broader question about the, the role of the state, and yes, I mean, I, I can and in a way it comes back to Veselin's question as well, which is 
why was social democracy, why social democracy failed? Um, yes, it's partly because, it's not just because of the fall of communism, it's because it was perceived that the Keynesian sort of statist, capitalist sort of mixture had, had failed and was um, unable to promote growth, was very rigid, hierarchical. So, you know, there is a history, there is an internal Western history. that, And so one could say, okay, um, that's not the solution. Um, I suppose my, I mean, you know, I'm not here to give grand solutions for the future of the world, but I mean, it seems to me that particularly if we're talking about environmental issues, um, I think the state will have to, I think people will be, push towards the state because they found it very, I mean, perhaps in an ideal world one might come up with a form of status capitalism that is linked up in some way with local communities. I mean, I suppose in a way that's what perhaps Marx wanted to do himself. But politically that hasn't, you know, there aren't those solutions out there that have emerged in a very convincing way. Um, and perhaps that, I suppose that is exactly what the left should be doing now. It should be thinking in a practical way about how to link the locality with the state in a way that you know, we, can, we can have some sort of greater state control over the market um, in a more appealing way than the, that the statism of the 50s and 60s. Uh, yes? Yes? Part of that was that the presence of East Germany and the Soviet Union apparently succeeding in a different way at that time meant that the liberal democratic <coughs> societies here had to uh, put on a, a, a more progressive tone and that with the collapse of the and uh, the, the Soviet regime, that what we are seeing now is that that restraint of the competing system has gone. Mm. Do you think that we, in fact, needed the Soviet Union with all its barbarities to uh, keep liberal democracy alive in the West? Mm. I, th I think there's a lot to that argument. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it, it was just that. Um, because in a way there had been a long learning process from the crisis of capitalism in the 1929 and the failure to deal with that effectively in the 30s and of course wartime meant that people, the societies were rather more collectivist and uh, left leaning in the West but I agree, I would agree with you absolutely that if we look at the decision making at the beginning of the Cold War um, the threat of communism in Western Europe was a major, had played a major role, and I think that is coming out in the history, you know, the history of writing on this period. That the America, why did the Americans introduce martial aid? Why were they so concerned about intervening in Western Europe in quite and and, and enforcing knocking capital and labour's heads together in a way? Well, they were because they thought that the communists were going to win elections in France and Italy, and that that would challenge American power. So I would say absolutely that the presence of the communist threat was a major, played a major role in uh, forcing capitalists to make concessions to the left. And in a way since 1989 that has not existed um, and there hasn't been that constraint. Um, 
and um, I, well, I don't know, if, if that's your analysis and you think that you need some threat to, to force capital capitalists to, to make concessions, then I suppose we're in for quite a long wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes? I'm not sure I entirely agree with the point that's been made that social <coughs> democracy has lost all of its self-confidence within Europe after 1989. I mean, I think that you, know, you have to look at different countries, and I'm thinking in particular of countries like Sweden and Norway, where there's, I think there's a very strong sense of, uh, of a social democratic uh, structure of power that works. I just wondered if you had any comments on why that might have worked there, if you compare that with somewhere yeah, no, I, 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 that doesn't. Yeah, no, I would agree that, I mean, different, you know, there are long traditions of, of social democracy in, in certain places and, and not in others, and um, I suppose it's not that surprising, given Britain's history, that Britain and America's history, that Britain and America would be the most neoliberal places and, and you would find more social democratic places, you know, politics in Sweden. Although, I'm no expert on Swedish politics, but as I understand it, Swedish uh, you know, there has been a, sort, a certain move to the right, even by Swedish standards. Of course, by British standards, it's pretty social democratic. Um, no, I mean, Europe and, and, and the, you know, many countries in Europe, generally in Western Europe, are much more social democratic, um, uh, certainly than, than Eastern Europe and, and, and than um, the sort of Anglo-Saxon um, world. So, yeah, there are variations, I would agree. But, but I still think, there, you know, intellectually, there seems to be a, 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 a loss of confidence, really. I don't think I'd agree with this one. Uh, I, I think I'll take just one more question. Uh, <coughs> uh, yes, over there. Hello. Thank you very much for your thoughtful lecture. I am from Nepal, and I live here in London. Uh, in your book, uh, it's uh, regarding the Maoist movement in Nepal, you have written a, a sentence, a crucial question today is how local guerrilla leaders will adapt to the new democratic politics. Could you kindly elaborate about it? Or do you think that uh, they want to follow the liberal democratic values or and, uh, at the end of the day they will more into the multi-party system or what do you... Yeah. Well, you probably know, you, I'm sure you know more about Nepalese, Nepalese communists than I, Maoists than I do. Um, I mean, that was written at a time when it looked as if um, the leadership was, uh, Prashandra was, was trying to, um, w w you know, that there was a chance of um, him and the movement adapting to um, or, or adopting a liberal type of politics. And he was saying really quite liberal things. For instance, that Lenin was a great marketizer and you know, he was saying very, very non-Maoist non liberal things. Of course, since then, there has been more of a crisis and you'll know more about that crisis than I do. And, and I mean, as I understand it, there is quite a split between the leadership and the guerrilla movement and I suppose that presumably is one of the major problems, not just in Nepal, but in quite a lot of India, that there are these um, local injustices where, you know, which um, uh, make, you know, which fuel, fuel a revolutionary movement. And it's very difficult to uh, solve those local injustices at a national level. But perhaps you have, an, you, you, you have a different view. Mm. All right. Okay. 
Well, I think on this point we should probably um, call it a day. Um, all that remains for me to do is, um, uh, first of all, congratulate David once again on thanks, producing thanks. Uh, such a, a terrific book. Um, I certainly enjoyed reading it, uh, even at bedtime. <laughs> so um, I think uh, all of us uh, will uh, enjoy reading it. Uh, there are uh, books for sale outside this lecture theatre, and David has kindly agreed to sign the books on stage here. So once you uh, buy your uh, books outside, please come in here so that uh, David can uh, sign your copy. So once again, uh, big thanks to David.